from earth, from water. Our people grew to love each other in this manner. For in all our languages, there is no he or she. We are the children of the earth and of the sea. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Gould Standard, the regular podcast of the Glenn Gould Foundation, bringing you conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary artists. Please, when you listen, remember to click like, share, and subscribe. And if you want to learn more, please visit our website, glenngould.ca. And when you're there, if you are feeling in a particularly generous mood, you can click a donate button and help support the work of the foundation. We would appreciate it very much. Now today we present part two of our conversation with Alanis Obamsawin, the great Abenaki filmmaker, musician, and visual artist, laureate of the 13th Glenn Gould Prize, which will be presented to her on October 4th. At the same time, we'll be presenting the world premiere of Seeds, the Art of Alanis Obamsawin, a spectacular sound and light show that will be projected on the 170-foot by 70-foot eastern facade of the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto before starting on its world tour. It is the work of the brilliant Métis uh, filmmaker and animator Terrell Calder, and we can't wait to share it with you all. When you come for the free admission event, please remember to bring your headphones or your earbuds and your cell phone to enjoy the full experience. Now, today we present part two of our conversation with Alanise. In part one, we talked about her early life, the formative experiences that prepared her for her life as an artist, first as a musician and teller of stories that expressed the struggles of Indigenous people in Canada and their determination to seek truth, justice, and ultimately reconciliation. Today we talk about Alanis's beginnings as a filmmaker and some of the landmark films that have ensured her position as one of Canada's most important artists. But first we're going to take a little detour. As you may know, the Glenn Gould Prize carries with it a certain obligation for our laureate. We ask them to choose a young artist of outstanding career potential and promise to be the recipient of the Glenn Gould Protégé Prize. And we're delighted that Alanis chose a really wonderful winner, the young Ojibwe filmmaker Victoria Anderson Gardner. So we're going to kick off with a short conversation between Alanis and Victoria. We hope you'll enjoy it, and we'll uh, stay on for the rest of the conversation with Alanis to talk about her own film work. So, Alanis, I've mentioned to our friends listening in that you are the 13th Glenn Gould Prize Laureate. And, of course, we don't make you the prize winner without actually giving you a job to do, too. And your job as the laureate is to choose a winner of the Glenn Gould Protégé Prize, an exceptional young artist with tremendous promise for a, uh, a wonderful future career of creativity 
And you made a choice and a wonderful choice. And uh, it's a bit of a surprise for you, but we have your protege here today, Victoria Anderson Gardner. And uh, folks, Victoria is an Ojibwe filmmaker from Eagle Lake First Nation. She's coming to us today from Thunder Bay, and it's so great to have the two of you together. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you for having me. This is a really nice surprise. Alan well, you did a good job in making the choice, but um, how, how did you first become aware of Victoria's work? I was looking for uh, uh, young people making films, and uh, I knew some, and a lot of them I don't know. They're all new, and you wish you could see uh, what they're doing. It's not always possible. So I looked at several films, and when I saw what she did with Nakuset, I was very impressed. Mainly the root of the whole thing for me, as I told you before, the listening for me is the respect you must give to the people you're going to be working with. And this is what I saw that really touched me, Victoria. You were wonderful and you really listened. This is why I chose you. Victoria, your decision to become a filmmaker, you must have known of Alanis's work. Was it something of an inspiration for you to pursue your own career in, in film? I would definitely say so. I think seeing just how you captured the stories of the different indigenous people around Turtle Island inspired me to capture my own family's stories, just because... I realized no one was really capturing them. And then it just kind of expanded from there of me capturing my family's stories as I wanted to capture more and more people's stories because I found that it helped for other people to understand us as people. Can you tell us a little bit about the films you've made so far and how you received your training in film? Where did you go to school? And was it a, a positive environment to, to learn the craft? Actually, I just graduated this year. Finally, uh, from Ryerson. I was in the film studies program there. It's like a four-year program. took me six years, so I took my time with it to really try to get what I could from the whole experience. I personally had a really good experience with Ryerson. It really introduced me to a lot of new people in the film industry. It allowed me to move to Toronto and to really expand my horizons from being from a really small northern community I think my community of Eagle Lake only has like five to six hundred members registered with them, so it's a very small community. So going from Eagle Lake to Toronto was a big transition, but it really helped me to find my voice a lot more and be more confident coming back home now. My main films that I've done so far, um, my big one was my thesis film, uh, which was called The Hurt That Binds Us, and it was documenting my own family stories and our own journey with intergenerational trauma in understanding each other. So I interviewed my grandpa, then I interviewed both my parents, and then my siblings as well, just to help us better understand each other as a family. And also just for me to understand why things were the way they were. And then my other film that I did is called Mino Wachoni Mitakyalo, uh, which was documenting the stories from these youth who were part of the they were part of the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I brought them together in Toronto in order to hear how them coming together impacted them as people, like how all these different nations coming together impacted them as people, and then also why it was really important to protect the land. And that one was really like life-changing for me to really see how different nations coming together is super powerful 
And then my most recent one was Becoming Nakaset. And that one was having to do with documenting the story of Nakaset, who was taken from her home in Thompson, Manitoba, to Montreal through Jewish Family Services. And just the experience she had of reclaiming her Indigenous identity as she got older. And mm-hmm. just the importance of Indigenous identity. And what I found very moving about that story, which in some ways is extremely specific to Indigenous people because it talks about the taking of children, um, the 60s scoop and, and, and similar activities that followed into a, a different culture and this huge gulf between the child and, and her parents, but also the power of elders because the grandmother in that family is such a a different source of wisdom and inspiration. And, and I, I found that part especially moving. I think that's honestly a really huge part of a lot of the work I do is trying to like connect the generations because I think it helps us to really understand better who we are as people, but also having that strength and love and support from the elders to help guide us to be able to be these strong people. I think that's really important to have. And I think that this is something that the non-Indigenous Canadian society could actually learn a lot from Indigenous people, which is to continue to turn to elders for, you know, wisdom and respect, connection between past and present, which I think we have a society that's generally very disconnected from history. And in that way, I think Indigenous people can be teachers to all of us. But for... For people who who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about about Eagle Lake and where it is and what the community is like? It's an Ojibwe community, right? Yeah. Eagle Lake is located about 400 kilometers northwest of Thunder Bay. It's very, very small, very quaint. Everyone knows each other. Everyone's like my uncle or auntie or cousin. I grew up fishing and just like learning to like live off the land a lot of the time. I grew up with a very loving family. I'm very grateful for all the support that I've received from my community. My community is definitely very uplifting to its members, which I'm really, really happy about. I have to say that Alanis, I feel richer because of your choice, because I learned about Victoria and her films. And I'm hoping that as a result of the prize, which, by the way, you'll be receiving this fall. We always do it a year after the announcement. I've had the chance to discover your work, and I'm going to be following your work. So now, you know, as I'm working my way through the enormous filmography of yours, Alanis, I'll also have more new releases to to watch for. What's your next project? Do you have something on the go now? Um, I'm actually the assistant director for a new series for Crave called Thunder Bay. The host for it is Ryan McMahon. The director who we've been working with is Elmaya Tailfeathers. And so I've been working really closely with them to help create this four-part documentary series. So keep an eye out for it in 2022. 2022. And finally... Alanis, because you are not only a mentor and a huge example, but also you spent so much of your life as a teacher, do you have any any words of advice for Victoria as she continues and and builds her career and makes more films? I think she has the answer because I saw it in Nakuset. And uh, because a lot of people make films from what they feel it should be. 
without listening. So often you have people who make films. After the film is gone out, it's finished, it's gone, they realize many other things. And it's unfortunate and it's too bad because if you really sit, listen to several people in a community, for instance, or about the subject you're going to be uh, working on, often you, you're doing it for good reasons. And if you are wanting the people to think or to talk a certain way, and that's what you're searching for, it's not something that I feel happy about. Whereas you can really tell, this is why I was so impressed with Victoria. I could see that she had respect and uh, that she was willing to hear. Because at the end of it, to hear is to see, really. If you don't hear, you're seeing something else. You're, you have an idea and this is the way the film should be. And that's what you're looking for. So you have no time to hear, really. And this is the difference, especially in documentary filmmaking. And mm -hmm. uh, I, she has it. I'm not worried about hers. It's wonderful that you are making films and who knows what else. It's, you're a gift to us. Uh, yes. And Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to presenting you the prize, which is some money and a beautiful statue. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted on the date and let you know where to be. It's been so great to, to meet you. And I just want to say, Jimmy Gwitch. Miigwitch for having me. Thank you. So, Alanis, you've got the educational kits, and then it becomes time for you to make a film of your own. And that breakthrough was Christmas at Moose Factory, which is still such a beautiful, I mean, it's so exquisitely beautiful, made up entirely of children's drawings and their voices. And I just have to say, you know, every time I see it, I want to just watch it again five times. But it wasn't easy to get made, was it? It took a while for it to get released. Well, that time has nothing to do with this time now, let's say. Oh, that much more respect and much more help than I ever did before. So if I hadn't uh, persist and say, I've got to finish this film, I was never getting the money to finish it. Because I was there in 1967, 68, 69, still no film. And I, I was doing the sound, I taped the children, and I was living in the residence of the residential school with the children. Wow. And I was with them all the time. And uh, I told them so many stories. And during the day, I would go to, to the school out of this uh, building. I did all the classroom. And I would tell stories to the kids. And they were used to me. And I was playing with them on a creation time. And so then that's how I said to the children, it's your turn to tell me stories. So they were so used to me. And, you know, there was no problem. And this is how I made the film. And it's such a strange thing that I think you, you said in, in an interview that I read that you, you literally had to find the money yourself to make that film. It wasn't on an NFB budget. And this is not such an expensive film. It's a short film. You didn't have to bring a lot of cameras and, and lights and so on because it's really the images are 
still photographs of the children and their artwork. Yeah. The first films that I made at the board, I had to go and collect money, find money, and the board would match what I would get. That's how it works. So it was very, very difficult to finish something or because then you have so much money and then you got to continue right. begging again because you're shooting again. And you know, it is, it's very expensive. We're shooting 16 by this time. Yes. And uh, I want to say to people, if you want to do something and it's right in your heart and in your mind, it's honest, you're looking for justice, nobody can stop you. If you have that in your heart and in your head, I must do this. These are the reasons. I've got to do it. It's something better for justice, something better for our people. So, you know, that was really pushing me. I, I don't have to do that now, but that's the way it was then. Yeah. It, it seems like a very strange time that my feeling about the, or my image of the NFB during the time when I was a kid going to school is a bunch of very Anglo-influenced elderly men from an upper-class stratum of society with a of grand vision of a Canadian culture and very, very male and very hierarchical. And suddenly you're there. So the very fact that you were invited to be there, even if it wasn't on equal terms, suggests to me that they were, they were feeling a need for a change. They just didn't know how to, to go about doing it. And perhaps the way that change was coming about through you was something that they really weren't prepared for, and it took them a while to adjust. Yeah, about right. I think, uh, you know, at the same time where all, all these terrible things happen and it's hard and all kinds of things, there's injustice, there's uh, racism, all, it's all there. And at that time, it was really a man's world in filmmaking. I didn't understand. Whenever I was put down or for, you know, I always thought that's because I'm indigenous. But often the fact that I was a woman was not helping. I realized that being a woman was quite a difficult time. But at the same time, they were good people who helped me out. And it's like that all my life. Sometimes people did terrible things to me, and at the same time, the same people did good things to me. I want to make sure that you know that I adore the film board. With all its problems at times, I think that the, the film board is really the worst of the country. And what the film board has done long before I was there is all very important. It's amazing, the history of the film board. Mm -hmm. And that still today, it's there with more modern ways of thinking, more modern uh, time. And they're still uh, helping a lot of people. And they don't have to run around like I did. Uh, go, go get the money or we don't right. give you anything. It's not like that now. Yes, I am very uh, thankful also that I live this long to see the difference. Yes. It's very different now. What we're going through now has nothing to do with what I went through at the beginning. I think a lot of the reason it doesn't exist, frankly, is because of you and because you kept pushing for change, mostly in the, in the form of having the freedom to do your own work without interference. And if you look at the, the filmography, for example, your first feature film, Mother of Many Children, in, in 1977, you're portraying the lives of indigenous women from many generations and different nations. And I, I still am so moved by the conversation that you had with uh, Agata Maria Goudin, who was 108 when you spoke with her. 
and it looked like you had a really amazing conversation. Can you remember the experience of sitting down with someone with that much history captured in their life? Yes. To make that film, I went through hell for a lot of reasons. I had to collect money again. And because I wanted to do a film not just about one woman, because it was a woman's year in 1975, mm -hmm. and they were all saying, oh, it's, it's going to be the woman's year. And I was invited in Ottawa to have lunch with five uh, indigenous women who were working in different departments, some at Indian Affairs and some not, the Secretary of State or places. And he said, oh, you have to make a film, it's going to be the woman's year. And some of them were saying, oh, you should make a film about a woman who's very well known. And I said, no, if I, met, if I touch her, I would, because it's the woman's year, I want as many women as possible to be in it. And I would start with life, when life starts, to the end, through mm -hmm. as many women as possible, which means traveling to a lot of places. Otherwise, I said, I'm not interested. So they said, okay, okay, uh, that's okay. And every one of them said, oh, in my department, there's going to be money for uh, oh, Indian people to do things, and we're going to make sure you get money from this. Five women, I was going to get money from the fine department. The time comes, and I go back to Ottawa, and I go to all these places, oh, so sorry, all the money is gone. We've given all the money in my department, you don't, there's nothing. And I remember coming back, I thought, this is going to be so hard to do mm -hmm. because I want to go to so many places. I'm going to need so much money. I'm going to have to go in begging for money. I'm not doing this. So I came back to Montreal by bus. And uh, I remember the next morning, I wake up and I'm washing my face and putting makeup on. And I was so mad at myself. I was humiliated that I thought that way, that I decided not to make the film. Mm -hmm. Since when you're going to give up before starting? And I'm talking to myself, really giving myself a hard time. So I took another bus, went back to Ottawa, went to Indian Affairs, went to many departments. Oh, I all said, there's no money, there's no money. I come, I think, to the Secretary of State, and I knew the man who was in charge of the, one of the sections there. He said, Alanis, all the money is gone. There's only $35,000 left. I said, are you kidding? <laughs> Give me that $35,000. The film board's going to match it, and I can start the film. And I made a big speech. <laughs> he said, okay. So he transferred the money to the film board, and the film board matched that, and I started. But after each time that I had to do another shoot to go someplace else, I was again stuck with uh, trying to find money. It was awful. And Anita Lerigudi, I went to see her. And the funniest thing happened. It was summertime. It was a hot day. And this friend of mine said, oh, you have to come and meet my old, old, old aunt. I said, okay. So we go over there and we knock on the door. There was a screen door. And about four or five kids come to the to answer. And they see us and go, oh, and they run away. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> then a woman comes in and she said, oh, Alanis. And she, she makes me until she says, the kids are watching you on Sesame Street. <laughs> and when they were watching me on Sesame Street, when the kids saw me, I was dressed almost the same. They thought I was a ghost. How could I be on TV? <laughs> How could I be there on their porch? <laughs> oh, it was so funny. And uh, so finally, she went and got them my first meeting with them. So then they, she went and got the mother, Anita Marie Goodin, that's her name. And uh, she was very old and 
So they said, when you play your drum on TV, she says, we take her to the TV. She's very, very close. She loves your drum. She knew what my drum looked like. And so we had a nice conversation and I asked her if I could put her in the film that uh, with her, whatever she wants to talk about. And she said, yes. And so we made a date like two, three days later. And when we came back with the crew, her daughter had made her a new dress. She had new mucklucks, you know, new. She was sitting on the, on the, the earth playing cards. It, it was very funny and right. very, very wonderful. And you see how she talks. Yep. That's and, why I took the title Mother of Many Children. And I, I remember from the, the film that you said in the, the narration that she was on the list of people from the signing of Treaty 6 in 1876. They took her off the list because she married a Métis guy who wasn't registered. Ugh. That's who it was then. Yeah. And it's disgusting. She was so beautiful. But a real poet, you know, when she says now, oh, it used to be so nice in the old days. We could hear the birds singing and the little animals. I love the way she says that. And then she, at one point she says, uh, and the creator really had a lot of affection for women. That's why he made mother of many children. And so it is beautiful. And well, it's, and it's, of course, the title of the yeah. film. Now, you talked a little bit about creative control. And the one place where that, I think, fairly early in your career became a, a real issue was an incident at Restigouche. Uh, which is your film about the the raids, the provincial police raids on the Mi'kmaq people who are protesting to preserve their salmon fishing rights. And you got into a little bit of a problem when you wanted to introduce the minister who had ordered those raids. Can you tell us uh, how, how that ended up going down? First of all, at the time at the film board, there was a, a, a system if you wanted to make a film or if you need more to continue making a film, you had to go to a committee. And the committee was filmmakers and one person who was like, I don't know what her title was, maybe, you know, I would say she was the director or the president of this committee. So when I went there to uh, ask for more money to go back to Westbrook, she said to me, she had a very weird voice. She says, I you're not allowed to talk to the whites. You hear me? Don't talk to the whites. You talk to the Indians and that's it. I didn't strangle her at that time. I told myself, don't say anything, because I had to have the money to go back there. Right. So I went to, back to Yosibush. And then I invited the minister to Montreal, and I interviewed him in my house. And that's what you see in the film. Right. Then we need more money to continue the film. I have to go back to the same place. So she says, I want to see what you did. And when she saw that, I thought she was going to pass out from a heart attack. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> then she said, I told you not to speak to the whites. You know? And then I really gave it to her. I'm telling you, I really said what I thought. And of course, I didn't get any money to continue anything. Wow. So I was in trouble. This was done in 1981. And the film never came out until 1984. And it was because of that. I couldn't get money to continue because I had such bad name there, you know. I won't tell you the rest how I got the turn to be finished, but I did it. 
Well, your resourcefulness and determination obviously had a lot to do with it. But, you know, speaking of giving someone hell, you gave that minister hell because he'd said some some awful things in the, the community in Restigouche about why he felt entitled not to respect the traditional rights for fishing. And you just let him have it. And it's one of those moments where I think any intelligent person who sees that is just going to get up and cheer because you really spoke truth to power. I was there when he came to Restigouche one time, and uh, the chief could not speak French. And Lucien de Sartre, the minister, I don't know if he could, could speak English, but he certainly didn't speak English. So the chief had a, a person to translate from Mi'kmaq to French. And while all this is going on, it's an interpreter that says the words in, in, in French for Lucien de Sartre that the chief is saying. It was very obvious. And then he says to the chief, you cannot ask for sovereignty. Who are you? To ask for sovereignty, you have to have your language, you have to have your land. Anyway, he goes on and on. He's talking to somebody who's an indigenous man, the chief in charge in a community like that. I thought he was so awful. That's why I did it. I said, who the hell do you think you are? Saying that to an indigenous person, you have to have your land. What, what land is this? You have to have your language. You have to have an interpreter to speak French. All the things, it was so more than insulting. Like you, you're a moron and I'll tell you more. Right. And the chief answered, he says, you, you people ask for sovereignty. He says, it's your own land and you cannot understand our sovereignty. Honor our own land. It was all. I had no patience. Well, that came through <laughs> very clearly in, in that conversation. But it also, in a way, becomes a, a symbol, a marker for the challenge that Indigenous people have had dealing with a settler culture that is so arrogant and so dismissive and, and frankly, ignorant of the thousands of years of history and the beautiful languages and stories and ways and wisdom of your people. And when I say your people, of course, there are 50 different, you know, First Nations that make up the Indigenous peoples of Canada. So it's not like a monolith. It's this unbelievable variety. And to to behave that way is just is so shameful. Yeah, and at the end, you know, I was thinking, I didn't want to be mean, and, and I said to myself, He's fighting for something also. It's like a, two different fights here. Mm-hmm. So it was hard for him to see or to understand, obviously, our roots. And uh, this is why at the end I said, do you want to say something? Uh, I was so angry at him for the way he treated the mm-hmm. people and the chief at that yeah. time. Well, you were you were a very powerful voice uh, in that, and a very powerful witness in uh, Kanasitake, uh, two hundred and seventy years of resistance, which won the best Canadian film award at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, that year. And you were the first woman director to win that that award. But it was an extraordinary film. And an extraordinary effort to make it because, well, for people particularly outside of Canada who do not know about this, this was a siege that took place when the Mohawk community in Kanasatake basically began to resist the theft of their land to create a golf course, of all things, as if it was so essential to to have a golf course. 
And it ended up becoming an armed standoff that lasted for more than two months. And you went behind the lines. It was not easy to go there. How did you manage to get in? How did you manage to stay in? And, uh, and what was that experience? It must have been a very, at one time, inspiring to see the, the spirit of the people, but also a very traumatic experience to, to be there with them. It was not easy. I felt that it had to be uh, documented by some of us. By the time I came out of there, I had an infection in my eyes, both eyes. I had a sore throat. I had poison ivy, poison oak. Just think of what I must have oh looked like. Oh, my God. It was really, I died. Oh, I was not well at all. But I'm glad that I say that length of time. It was difficult. We were sleeping outside on the earth there on garbage bags. The insults, and the, there was a lot of confrontation between the soldiers and the, the warriors and the police. And it was, um, I hate guns, and everybody with guns, guns everywhere. So just that alone was very difficult. But I felt if all those people can endure this, and they're doing this for their own people and for the right reason, I can't. Right. stay When it escalated from being uh, the uh, the Sûreté de Québec to the Canadian Armed Forces, it really wasn't sure, uh, certain, that it wouldn't turn into a, a totally uncontrolled armed conflict. So you really were taking a chance with your life. And, I mean, the NFP must have been incredibly worried for your safety. Your family and friends must have been worried for your safety. Were you concerned that you might not come out of there alive? The film board tried to get me out. Every weekend, they'd say, you have to come out, you have to come out. And I, I refused, I wouldn't come out. And I only came out when the traditional chiefs inside told me they were leaving that day, like the next day or so. I, I thought, oh, I'm getting out of here before you, because I had all stock of films that I had done and sound, and I knew if I go out with them, it'll be confiscated, and I was right. It was... Very nerve-wracking because uh, people were saying there were messages to the warriors, if you don't come out, we'll get you out. And there was a helicopter constantly hovering over where they were and uh, not moving, just watching. So, you know, it was really wartime. So, of course, I was worried. I said, if there's one, a warrior or a soldier that shoots or a police officer will finish they're going to start shooting each right. other and they're going to say, I'm not going to shoot this one or that one. Everybody's going to be in it. And that's what we were all afraid yeah. of. But who saved this not to happen? It is the traditional people, traditional chiefs who came there and appeased the warriors. You know, the warriors are ready to shoot or the soldiers are, and really talk to them about the values. Why did our people get killed and all these years many generations of people have died for the land for the future generation always uh, talking about that and they were so wonderful and they had ceremonies in the back there and you could feel the change after with the warriors it was very different you could almost feel it in mm. the air and uh, their language changed and this is how they burned their guns before coming out and they were 
uh, appeals yeah. to one. Uh, but I, I think if they hadn't had that kind of way of talking about the spirit, about who you are and who our ancestors were, they were so wonderful. Yeah. This is how there was no no shooting. And and the film itself really does capture the unfolding events. It, it really makes you feel as though you're there seeing the the these things as they happen. And And it has this extraordinary ability to make you feel like you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know whether something really terrible is going to happen at any moment. And of course, the denouement is in some ways very, very sad. But yet there's also the fact that there was this awakening that came from the resistance. So, you know, it's a very complex film and very, very nuanced in, in that way. And I think that it did a lot to help people on the other side of that border to understand what was what was at stake. There are a couple of your other films that I wanted to chat about. One, of course, which was, I thought, especially heartbreaking for me and anyone who sees it. And that's your 90, 1986 film, Richard Cardinal, The Cry from the Diary of a Métis Child. That is, in some ways, very hard to to watch because it's about a boy who killed himself and trying to piece together the story that went into that awful event. How did that, the inspiration to make that film come to you? And and were you worried that it would be just too raw and too painful to present? I was there at West uh, at the time working on another film, Paul Maker's Watch, which is in St. Albert, just outside of Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And this uh, film has to do with people on the street in trouble and and this center that really helps them to cure that, uh, which is called Pondmaker's Lodge. And I saw on TV Mrs. Crothers being interviewed, and she's talking about the fact they had this young boy that they took in as a foster child. And uh, and she said, oh, you know, we're farmers, we now don't... uh, we have this farm, and we hope my husband and I are working, our children are married, why don't we help out? And they suddenly decide to take Richard. Not much later, he hung himself on the wall. So, and she's talking about that on TV and uh, and saying how awful it was for them. They just was trying to help, and you had to ask yourself, is it my fault or whatever? So I was in Edmonton, and I, I, I decided I wanted to go and talk to her and her husband, not to make a film at the time. That's not what I was thinking. I just wanted to talk to them so that they wouldn't regret the fact that they took him in. Obviously, they had no idea about the history and uh, all that was happening with a lot of young people. Just for that, to uh, to make them feel better, and also to for our own people, you know, like people don't know uh, how did this happen, mm-hmm. and you wonder and what history is, is behind. So I went to see them, and I stayed there overnight, and I talked with them. And then uh, when they were telling me, uh, her husband said that when they called the police, he sees Richard hanging on a tree. So they, you can imagine, it's on their land yeah. too. So they phoned the police, and he said, they waited, I forget how long, like three, four hours for the police to come. So he couldn't believe that. Just the, the very beginning, that's yeah. what it is. 
So he decided to take a picture of Richard hanging there. And finally, the police come and no investigation, no nothing. They never came back. They couldn't believe it. They said, you think they shouldn't investigate us? I said, yeah. I found that we do something wrong. You know, all that. Zero, nothing. So he was so upset. He said, it was like just another Indian did. What's that? You know, no problem. So he sent a picture to a, to a, a magazine in Edmonton. It appeared in a newspaper. And now the rage started. Nobody was, it was nobody's mm-hmm. fault. Not the government's fault. Not Indian Affairs' right. fault. Then there was, they were asking for an inquiry. And the government didn't want an inquiry. And they were, the journalists were incredible. Every day there was an article in the paper questioning the government why they're not having an inquiry. So it became so embarrassed that they had to finally decide to have the inquiry. And I decided to go and watch the inquiry, Mm -hmm. just myself. And I was so upset. I'm telling you, I said, I have to cover this. So we started filming part of it. I came back to Montreal. I didn't tell uh, the film board I had two films going on Mm -hmm. instead of one. took me quite a while, and especially this case. So... Then, you know, to put the picture in the film, I didn't sleep many nights before I decided to do it. And I said, that's the shot they need to have. They have to see exactly what they're doing. This boy did 28 foster homes and group homes from the age of four to 17. You don't want to talk about that? And he commits suicide and still you try to hide. Try to hide it. And try to hide what the reasons are. And I, I could see that very clearly. And that's when finally I decided to put the picture there. Look at it. This is what you're creating. Mm-hmm. And we've had more suicides than anybody else in the country. You know, not because of Richard Carpenter. Long before that and after. Now it's going down. It was very, very hard. And when I really start researching and reading what he had written, one of the last home we went to, it was a couple who was uh, in charge of this home, and they're the ones that would encourage these young people on the street to write about themselves, to write what they've gone through. And that's how Richard started to write a journal. And he, the way he wrote his poetry, mm. it was, it's just beautiful that he was able to really express himself that well. And this is why in the film I use his voice mm-hmm. a lot, like his writing. For him to have a voice and see why it, it turned out like that. It's powerful, and I, I hope that everyone who hears about it will be moved to watch it, because, of course, we're now dealing with what I think Indigenous people across the country have known about for a long time, and the settler society is finally having to come to terms with, which is the death of children in residential schools, and I think that there's such a a connection between what this one very sad, abused by the system young man experienced, and we think now thousands of children over more than a hundred years experience these institutions. I don't want to call them schools; these prison camps with a, a pretext of education. This is, I think, in some ways as those of us who are experiencing this traumatic news now 
are trying to make sense of it and come to terms with it, your film, I think, is a great starting point for that journey of understanding. You know, after the film came out, I was getting calls, letters, and everything uh, every day. But that little film is just a one half hour long, has really forced a lot of changes. For instance, apparently, then, I haven't checked lately, but each province has its own law in terms of the rights of children. And that's when they changed the one in Alberta. Previously, when there's trouble in, in the community, a social worker would come, a white social worker who worked for the government and would remove the children. Even at, when they talk about the 60s school, it's a bus that would come and take all the children away. And the parents never knew where they were. And a lot of them, they were adopted out or gone to another country. And it's a terrible mm -hmm. story. So what they did at that time, some indigenous people wanted to adopt. Let's say there's a troubled family in an unreserved. And it's, you know, they don't have to go through this. It could be uh, because of liquor, uh, because of abuse. Or... So then the social worker would come, remove the child, and place it in a town somewhere. No indigenous people ever qualified to take in the children. A lot of them would want to, and the social worker would say, oh, where is he going to sleep? Uh, do you work? And asking all those questions that sometimes were not satisfying the person. So they never they were never could take in indigenous right. children. So they were always moved to the town or the, to other. Well, in that act of children, so if you look at the film, because I'm really sure that it was written on the screen. From then on, if a child is in need and in the community, they had to see the social worker's job was to find a place under reserve, maybe somebody related to that child, maybe another family. And if there was nobody, then if they went to the city, they had to find homes where they were indigenous people. This was very new. It's after Richard right. Cardinal. They identified, I forget, I think it was 65 homes in the city. And there was an organization, an indigenous organization at that time that saw that this would come to, to be. So now... It was the opposite. Instead of making sure no Indian homes could take in children, they had to be indigenous and or related to the child. So that already was a big difference. Yeah. Richard never got a chance to go to an indigenous home to right. stay or to be uh, received. And it's not as though, and I think this comes through in the film very clearly, it's not as though all of those placements were awful or they were awful people. The family that you spent time with, his, his last family, seemed like very warm and caring people who only wanted to do the right thing for him. And I think it really, it really tormented them that, they, that he ended up taking his own life. It was really uh, difficult. And I, and I worked before with a lot of people, our people on the street here. I made another film. It's called No yeah. Address. And it's funny, I, I, and I still say it today for people who are interested in documentary filmmaking, it is so important and it's so strong and how it can affect change and how you can really help out. Like it's a family, it's a society, it's mm -hmm. a country. It's for everybody. I'm so passionate with it. I'm still yeah, I know it. you are. I'm going to be 89. It's, it's 89. 89. You're, you're just... <laughs> A couple of weeks away from, from turning 89, and you're working on, is it film number 53 now, or is it 54? It's more than that. 
I have 53 done. I'm working on eight films. They're all short films. Four are finished, uh, four more to That's finish. incredible. That's incredible. I, I know we don't have too much more time, but there are at least one other film that I wanted to ask you about because to me it seems like a bit of an outlier. It's a little different from your other films. It's not dealing with an indigenous subject at all. It's it's your film about Dr. Norman Cornett at McGill University. And uh, he was this very popular professor who had very unusual methods of teaching. And one day the axe fell and he was he was gone. What led you to be interested in Norman and his story? Well, at first it wasn't me. It was uh, producers from the film board that uh, knew about him and uh, they were discussing about making a film. And they asked, they felt that I should direct mm-hmm. it because I had to do with education and I'm always preaching about education. So I went to meet Dr. Cornett. I also went to some of his students and people and I was very, very impressed of the way he was teaching which the root of it is always going for community. Community, uh, it's a group yeah. of people that are learning together. And, it, and I thought, Jesus, I was very impressed with his mind and how he was teaching and how he was, uh, it was more than teaching, helping these young people and believing mm-hmm. in themselves. And it was very... And sadly, it ended up that something about what he was doing, and we still apparently don't know, upset somebody. And despite his incredible popularity as a teacher, they, after 15 years, basically said, you're gone now. And he was never really able to to get an answer as to why. That kind of unresponsive authority must be something that also, you know, you felt the the context of when you're looking at how people have been affected by the Indian Act and various government systems and the whole issues of status and your film Trick or Treaty about the the numbered treaties and the challenges to those treaties, which were, that's very complicated subject matter, but you you handled it, I thought, with an enormous amount of clarity to to bring that history to life. I, I thought trip or treaty was very important for many reasons. First of all, even in a regular conversation in this country, if you're indigenous and you say treaty, what is, ah, don't talk about that, that's finished. It has no power, it has no, it's an old right. thing. And nobody understands what is a treaty and how it's made and why and how and how many treaties there were. And you know, and this is why I have to make that film and I'm so happy that I do because it's a different story now. And I know that most of these uh, learning places like universities, college, school, have these, these films. This is who I always think of first, is education, to give them the tools, who we are, what we are. And, uh, and our people are so beautiful, and they don't right. know it. And, and this is something that impresses me so deeply about your work, is that one of the things that I I've always felt very passionately is all human beings are of equal value. I mean, I think that that's an easy statement to make, but if you think about the way our society works, it's it's not the way we live. We don't treat people as having equal value, and it actually is is a very profound concept politically and socially to actually what would it be like if we really behaved as though everyone had equal value in society? Regardless of how much money they have or what profession they have, they came into the world the same way. They are going to leave the world the same way. That means that if you see someone on the street 
who is living in a very unfortunate circumstance and the people that we tend to, to ignore and to pretend aren't there or that they don't exist. But you don't do that. No. And often, you know, people say, oh, what? You know, it, I give lots of lectures and uh, master classes and stuff. And often people say, what can I do? What can we do to help? Everybody can do something. One thing very simple, when you're walking on the street and you see a couple of indigenous people, they may be drunk or maybe they're sitting on the sidewalk or Inuit people. And instead of going across the street, because you don't want to look at that and you feel it's disgusting, because that's what a lot of people do. If you could just try to meet the eyes of that person, that person has a life just like you. And you have to respect that. Just the way you look at them, either you make them feel worse, why can't you make them feel good that realize they're important, they're a person, they're human? Just that alone, you might do something really great for that person that day. You can start by that. Recognizing and respecting life. Life is sacred. It's sacred for all. And that person who is in the lowest place, or maybe vomiting at the sidewalk, deserve that you respect that person. It would go such a long way. It's just acknowledge the humanity of other human beings, no matter what. That actually leads me to a couple of other things, which is the way you've dealt with very painful subject matter. And, and I think now, I mean, one of the things that, of yours that has also inspired me is your record Bush Lady, which I think captures in a very short time such a range of both history and experience and injustice and the culture and the, the values of your people. It's really such a moving artistic expression and a document. How did you come to, to, to make that record? I made it a very long time ago, I think in the 60s sometime. And uh, mainly because there was so much uh, violence towards our women all across the country in communities, outside of community, it was just terrible. And it was so painful. And I myself did not disappear, and I could tell you it's probably a miracle, because I came close for very many times. And uh, this is how I decided to write this song, to uh, tell people this story that was still living. But I've seen many changes since then. There's a lot of good people that, across everywhere and across the country that want to see, I think, justice to our people and are aware now of what do you mean by uh, the missing woman. And so I think more and more, instead of saying, oh, it's just another squad, like I heard that, squad is a very beautiful name. It's, it means woman. But the stranger used the word to express a different meaning which their meaning is, you lay down, I'm going to do it to you, shut up, you're lucky that I'm, uh, I won't say the word, but it's just awful. So that's, these are the reasons. I want to bring respect to the killed and missing woman. It's a shattering musical experience, and the good luck for us is that people can still get it, and it will be something that you cherish if you get it on plastic. It's actually in a, uh, a really beautiful edition with lovely artwork by you, wonderful program notes, so I highly recommend it. I just mentioned something which we haven't talked about yet, but I want to because it's also been inspiring us at the foundation, and that is your, your visual art, your 
etchings and engravings and, and the beautiful prints that you've made from those. When did you start making pictures like that? And, and how did you come up across that medium as the way you wanted to express yourself? In 1990, when I came out of uh, Ganesha I went back to that. And about maybe 15 years before I had started, but not as um, professionally or not as, uh, as hard as I was working then. I went to a studio here, which is called uh, Evelyn Dufour, a center to go and do prints. And it was from a friend who went there who introduced me to her, um, uh, that was Bob Bell. And so I started going there and doing my pictures, but instead of doing monoprints, which at that time I was doing it with paint on glass, now I was engraving on a pewter or copper. And they really uh, taught me how to do it, and it was just fantastic. I, I went to that studio for several years, and uh, it's a, a woman and her mother, they both great artists, and taught me how to do it and encouraged me, and that's how. And now I, was, I could do as many prints as I want on one image that I had mm-hmm. engraved. And I uh, start to be very interested in handmade paper also. It's very exciting to, and you know, you have to yes. engrave and it's thousands of lines. And many of my friends, they say, oh my God, it's so boring. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that. I don't feel that way because when I start something, I know where I'm going and I get more and more into the story. And I don't find it long. It's, I love the movement right. of it. I love doing it. One time I went to India. I was on a plane for 26 hours nonstop, and I brought a plate, and I engraved all of all those hours. I wasn't finished after 26 hours. Today I couldn't do that because they don't allow you to take in the you know, metal. And, 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 and after, after the plate is, is etched, you have to put it in an acid bath, right? Not necessarily. If you want to have another t- texture, you do put it, out, put it in acid. But you can print without doing that. Mm-hmm. You, if we, but you have a different look because when you put it in the acid, it gives you uh, another background that is quite right. different. And that's also wonderful to learn. Yeah. You know, all those um, ways of uh, giving a certain allure to... And, and in your prints, the, the ones that I especially love are the ones with mothers and children's and the ones with animals. And of course, my favorite animal, and I think probably he's your favorite animal too, is the green horse. And if you wouldn't mind sharing the story of the green horse and how he came into your life through your dreams, that would be fantastic. It's a dream I had. When I was a child and I was being very badly treated and beaten and all those things, when I was going to sleep, Every night, and sometimes if I was punished, I had to go to bed. When my eyes was closed, I was sleeping. I was in another world. I was so happy. And always with animals. And the animals I had in my dream, they never looked like the ones we know. I called them horses, but they didn't look exactly like a horse you see Mm -hmm. in life. And they talked, and they helped me, and they protected me all my young life. The green horse came to me later when I was an adult, really. Well, he wasn't friendly right, right off the bat. He was chasing you, no? No, he was chasing me, making me very angry. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, and he'd grab me and then I'd have to fight to get away from him. Until one time, I ran and he's running after me. So I run into a house and I know you guys are going to analyze me. No, 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 we don't do that. I, I, I run into the house, but very quietly. Why? Because there's a man sleeping there. And if he knows I'm there, he's going to rape me. So, you know, psychiatrists say, well, why'd you run there? Yeah. All I can. I don't know why. I can't explain it. So now I close the door very quietly and I'm in the window. There is a big window on the door. And the horse is on the little porch. And he says to me, if I want to, I break the horse and I, gr- I break the window and I grab you. And me, I can't talk loud because yeah. I don't want to wake up that man. So I'm saying, talking just with sign, don't do this, you know. Finally, I said, if you stop running after me, I'm going to come and visit you every day. He said, how will I know it's you? Oh, I said, just the way I'm going to pat your back, you're going to know it's me. So then he goes in the back like this and he comes out with a big bouquet of flowers. Little flowers, so beautiful, like really big. So now I'm not afraid anymore. So I opened the door quietly and I'm walking with him. I have the flowers and we're friends. And that's how we became oh. friends. And I would see him every day and it was very nice. And the green horse is going to be in one of your upcoming films. And that, that actually yeah. creates an interesting connection to us because uh, it involves a wonderful, actually brilliant animator, uh, Terrell Calder. She's going to help yeah. bring the green horse to life, right? Yeah. I can't wait to see that. The idea that some spirit guardian, well, can go from being threatening to being, you know, your friend and and that he stayed with you to till today and that you're going to be sharing them with with children and their parents. Yeah. And I yeah. I think you told me that you have an idea in mind to reach out not just to, you know, well you will reach out to all children, but to to some children specifically. Um what what what's your vision for that? is that I want to, people to understand the power of dreams. And every person in the world has that power and has dreams. That often people don't pay attention. They say, oh dear, I dreamt this, I dreamt, and that's all. But I, lately, uh, some of the last films I've made, I've been working with children, people with special needs, and I want to have a special sequence with them. And they're, so I have a whole way of, going about that I find very exciting because they dream too. Well, we hope that that that's a a presentation that you'll be able to to make because those children, I think, will will gain so much from from meeting the green horse and making friends with the green horse. Looking back over your work, you know, you have experienced, but also you've been a witness to so much pain and injustice and hurt. And it seems and has seemed as though there's never going to be an end. Communities that still have to live under boil water advisories, the legacy of the residential schools, the the concern that every human being with a working brain has about what we're doing to the environment, to animals, to the climate. How do you stay hopeful and keep from being consumed by bitterness and also to keep that pain from from turning into hate. Because I I know you well, and you're a very strong person, and you can be angry, but I've, I, I've never sensed that spirit of hate in you. You know, it's funny you should say that. The other day I was working in my garden, 
And this woman, a neighbor, Oranil, she said, oh, I saw you on TV, blah, blah. And she says, this is terrible about the children that uh, have been found, you know. We've known this, we've been talking about it since the 60s. But she says, you must really hate us. I said, no. She says, you don't hate us? I said, no. I don't want to hate anybody. I know too much what it feels when somebody hates you. I don't want anybody to feel like I've felt for so many years and how our people feel still mm-hmm. to this day. That is a terrible place. And I know that uh, the danger when you are, you feel that you are disturbed or they're picking on you, they're bullying you and all that, it's hard to think of anything else. You're trying to survive, you cry, you feel bad, you feel ugly, uh, you know, everything is against you. And that's what I want to change. That's what I want to tell people. First of all, it's not too horrible. And so we have to dig for the beautiful part and go towards that because you can't say that everything was bad and everything, people are all bad and it's not true. And there's a lot of good people and a lot of good things happening to us too at the same time. And we have to consider that and recognize it and know that about ourselves. That we are, that we are beautiful people. We had good thoughts in our minds and in our hearts. That's what we have to concentrate on. At the same time, somebody may be spit on you. It's just a spit. Think of something else that's happening. Think of how poor that person who did this is much more than right. you. So it, it's very dangerous when we feel bad about something. We, you, you, you diminish everything about yourself. That's what we have to fight back, because that's hate. I don't want to be identified with hate anywhere. I don't want to hate anybody. I don't care what they do to me. I'm not going to hate. And I'm going to make sure that I'm going to produce love someplace, somehow, for myself and for whoever is around me. And that's where I'm going. I don't, I, I refuse, because we see what hate has right. done in the world to people, to animals, to the weather, to the earth. If you don't have any consideration for life, and I mean life, everything that lives needs consideration and respect. So this is where I'm going, and this is where I'd be. I, I agree so much. I mean, the one of the most terrible things about hate is that it is uh, very good at reproducing itself. It, you know, hate breeds more hate, breeds more hate, and the only vaccination, to use the the terminology that we're all living mm-hmm. with these days, is to say, I refuse to hate, not interested. That is at least the, the one hope for turning the hatred that others directed us upside down so that they really, like, I hate them and they don't hate me back. What's, what's wrong, you know? And yeah. at least there's some hope there. What other yeah. things give you hope? Have you, have you seen and felt progress that makes you feel like, you know, you know? Oh, yes. I've seen so much change, so much progress. That's why how lucky I am to have lived this all to see what a big difference it is when you think of 20 years ago. And you might have never mind 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah, you couldn't go outside, you could hear modes de sauvagesse, you know, uh, it's, that's the way it was. Not like that today. The same people who did very bad things are very different today. I'm not saying everybody, but certainly a lot of them. I, I'm very um, touched as I travel and I see the way people talk and the way people are concerned. And uh, there's a big change everywhere in it, everything. 
and in government agencies and in its institution, uh, you know, it's right. very different. There's no place right. for hate. They've taken too much place, and it's made so many people so sick. And and of course, you're now surrounded by artists who have not only followed your example, but also in visual art. And of course, we've seen so much growth in the the recognition and confidence, not only of the Abenaki people, but the Ojibwe, the Cree, the the First Nations from across the country, the Inuit, uh, the Métis, finally. And it's it's not all well and good yet. But and of course, I understand the the frustration that it's taking too long and has taken too long. But I do think that your work is an enormous invitation for us to to join hands and not put up with pardon the expression, bullshit explanations about why it's so slow. We just have to keep pushing to make it happen faster and and get to the, the completion of that of that journey, to, to not just to use words like reconciliation. Let's just fix things. Let's make the laws better, the way people have to live better. If I've got tax dollars, I'll spend them on that. I want them spent on that. It's happening. Thanks in no small measure to you. And I, I just want to say in closing how grateful we are. First of all, thank you for accepting our prize. I, I should say to people that we have, and you know this, that we have a lot planned. We're going to take your, your beautiful etchings engravings and blow them up, not quite a mile high, but very large, in a, a wonderful show that you and Terrell Calder, our animator friend, are creating called Seeds the art of Alanis Obamsawan that is going to premiere in October at the Royal Ontario Museum. And it will actually be 75 feet, uh, pardon me, 170 feet wide by 75 feet high. Um, so it's going to be big and it's going to be free at street level for everyone to see and to listen to your music over their earbuds. And we're working with our dear friend, Vigo Mortensen, who has his own publishing house, a wonderful publishing house, Percival Press, to release the first art book devoted entirely to your prints and engravings. And that you and, and Victoria Anderson Gardner will join us when COVID lets us do it safely to do some master classes with young filmmakers and really help continue passing the torch. And maybe a few other things that we, we haven't even announced yet because we like surprises. But I just want to to thank you and also just to express gratitude. Your films have really made big changes for me in my life. They've been an inspiration. They've also been an example of what is possible to your people. And oh, the best news of all is Everyone who listens to this, I know you're going to want to see Alanis's films, and you can see them anytime you want to in beautiful, high-resolution video and good sound by going to the National Film Board website. They're all there. You just click on them, and you can watch them. And the only risk that you face is you may want to watch all 53, <laughs> one after another, in which case you might, you might, you might have malnutrition problems. You know, well, but you know, uh, we have fifty-three finished, but I'll have eight new films. Oh my goodness! They'll they'll have to keep updating the the NFB website. So, it's nfb.ca. Just search on Alanis's name, and she is, of course, a member of that very distinguished 
Abenaki family, the Obamsuan family. I, I've seen so many Obamsuans since I started following your work. Yeah. You, there, there are many of you. Yeah, there's four lines of wow. Obamsuan. Well, Alanis, really, from yeah. the bottom of our hearts, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the, the way you have given so much of your great spirit to, to your people and to help heal Canada and to the world. You're a very important documentary filmmaker. Everyone who loves documentary films must know your work. And we, uh, we're, we're just very grateful to, to have this chance to speak with you. You've been very generous to, to give us so much time. Thank you, and I want to say thank you to all Canadians for supporting institutions such as the National Film Board of Canada, CBC, Telefilm Canada, all these institutions that are wonderful to really help uh, people to do what they wish to do in this art world. It's wonderful. And thank you to all Canadians, and thank you to Glenn Gould for spoiling me so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been our privilege, and if Glenn were here today, you know, he, he, he left us in 1983, but he loved the North, and he would be so proud today. I think he would have been very eager to have the chance to meet you. So let us just say à la prochaine, and thank you again. Thank you. Olivia. Hey, Ryan. How are you? Well, I'm great. I have to say, no matter what mood you're in, a conversation with Alanis is really a tonic to the spirit. Her her courage, her determination, but also just the positive energy and the love that she exudes, it just can't help but inspire you. Yeah, she certainly is a pick-me-up. And we actually had the privilege of meeting her in person at TIFF this fall. And she is just a firecracker, isn't she? <laughs> she is. It's uh, amazing that uh, with 53 films already under her belt and at the age of 89, she's now at work on eight more. I count them eight. It's pretty incredible. And, you know, for those who caught the reference uh, in the conversation, a lot of Canadians first encountered Alanise during the uh, the heyday of the Canadian version of Sesame Street, which started, I think its precursors were in the 70s, but it uh, continued on under the name Sesame Park from 1996 until 2002. And she was a regular on that show as a singer. So yet another one of her indelible contributions to Canadian culture. Absolutely. I'd love to go back and watch those clips, actually, because as you know, Alanis loves children and she's so wonderful with them. I can only imagine how captivating she'd be on such a program. Well, that sounds like a great archival project. As uh, we mentioned at the top, uh, we are about to present the $100,000 Glenn Gould Prize to Alanis. 
and uh, we have a special event that will be happening at the same time. Could you please remind our listeners of the details? Absolutely. We have been working very hard here over at the Glenn Gould Foundation to present Seeds, the Art of Alanise Obamsawin. This is an outdoor sound and light show at the Royal Ontario Museum from October 4th until the 17th. It begins every night at 8 p.m. until 10 p.m. And there's a couple of showings each night, so you can catch it anytime you are able to. The film itself is by... Métis animator Terrell Calder. She is just such a pleasure to work with, so talented, and the film itself is incredibly moving and powerful and celebrates the visual art and music of Alanis. So if you are in Toronto, we encourage you to come. It is free to the public. Please bring your earbuds and your cell phone to experience the full soundscape of seeds. It really is a marvel and we'd love for you to see it. And it screens every evening from October 4th to 17th, as uh, Olivia said, between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m., three times an hour. So you can choose a time that suits your convenience. And uh, as they say in the infomercial, but wait, there's more. Because also, as part of our celebration of Alanise, we will be uh, releasing in partnership with Percival Press, the wonderful art book publisher run by Vigo Mortensen, the first ever book devoted to Alanis's visual art. It's called Dream Visions, The Art of Alanis Obamsuin, and it is coming soon to a fine bookseller near you. Yes, and you will absolutely love it. So please stay tuned for more release details on the book. And to always check in and get the latest news, just remember all of our social media feeds and glengould.ca. Absolutely. You've got it, Brian. Please keep up with us. We've got lots going on, and we would love for you to join us on the ride. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, folks. Mm -hmm.